spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here are your hosts, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic, and sometimes not-so-classic, monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Bryce, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kid Radio! Welcome. It's the final week, I believe, of Bronte, Bronte, Bronte. Sorry, Anne, we never got to you. Maybe next time. We're going to be finishing off with Withering Heights. And we will also have some Ken Height talking about Withering Heights. Funny how that happened. And also, thank you for listening. And next month, I think, is Ghost Stories, because it's October. And if you want to help the show, want to know what's going on, you want to be a part of it, you've got some stuff that you want to do, read, whatever, go to pgttcm.com, subscribe where you subscribe to podcasts, tell your friends to subscribe, rate, review, talk about it, contact us, find out how to get some cool stickers, and we'll set you up. So, pgttcm.com, on Facebook as pgttcm, and Black Clock Audio Tales, also on Instagram as Black Clock Audio Tales and Twitter, which we don't use that much as Black Clock Audio Tales, PGTTCM. Thank you again, and yeah, you can also check us out on YouTube and listen to Monster Kid Radio and look for me next week at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival in Portland, Oregon at the Hollywood Theater, even though I'll probably be over at the Hollywood Senior Center doing role-playing game stuff and being on panels. Recording by Ruth Golding. Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Chapter 13. For two months the fugitives remained absent. In those two months Mrs. Linton encountered and conquered the worst shock of what was denominated a brain fever. No mother could have nursed an only child more devotedly than Edgar tended her. Day and night he was watching and patiently enduring all the annoyances that irritable nerves and a shaken reason could inflict. And though Kenneth remarked that what he saved from the grave would only recompense his care by forming the source of constant future anxiety, in fact that his health and strength were being sacrificed to preserve a mere ruin of humanity. He knew no limits in gratitude and joy when Catherine's life was declared out of danger. And hour after hour he would sit beside her, 
tracing the gradual return to bodily health, and flattering his too sanguine hopes with the illusion that her mind would settle back to its right balance also, and she would soon be entirely her former self. The first time she left her chamber was at the commencement of the following march. Mr. Linton had put on her pillow in the morning a handful of golden crocuses. Her eye, long stranger to any gleam of pleasure, caught them in waking, and shone delighted as she gathered them eagerly together. "'These are the earliest flowers at the heights!' she exclaimed. "'They remind me of soft thaw winds, and warm sunshine, and nearly melted snow. "'Edgar, is there not a south wind, and is not the snow almost gone?' "'The snow is quite gone down here, darling,' replied her husband. "'And I only see two white spots on the whole range of moors. "'The sky is blue, and the larks are singing, "'and the becks and brooks are all brimful. "'Catherine, last spring at this time, "'I was longing to have you under this roof. "'Now I wish you were a mile or two up those hills.' The air blows so sweetly, I feel that it would cure you. "'I shall never be there but once more,' said the invalid. "'And then you'll leave me, and I shall remain forever. "'Next spring you'll long again to have me under this roof, "'and you'll look back and think you were happy today.' Linton lavished on her the kindest caresses and tried to cheer her by the fondest words. But, vaguely regarding the flowers, she let the tears collect on her lashes and stream down her cheeks unheeding. We knew she was really better, and therefore decided that long confinement to a single place produced much of this despondency, and it might be partially removed by a change of scene. The master told me to light a fire in the many weeks' deserted parlour, and to set an easy chair in the sunshine by the window, and then he brought her down, and she sat a long while enjoying the genial heat, and, as we expected, revived by the objects round her, which, though familiar, were free from the dreary associations investing her hated sick chamber. By evening she seemed greatly exhausted, Yet no arguments could persuade her to return to that apartment, and I had to arrange the parlour sofa for her bed till another room could be prepared. To obviate the fatigue of mounting and descending the stairs, we fitted up this, where you lie at present, on the same floor with the parlour, and she was soon strong enough to move from one to the other, leaning on Edgar's arm. Ah, I thought myself. She might recover, so waited on as she was. And there was double cause to desire it, for on her existence depended that of another. We cherished the hope that in a little while Mr. Linton's heart would be gladdened and his lands secured from a stranger's grip by the birth of an heir. 
I should mention that Isabella sent to her brother, some six weeks from her departure, a short note announcing her marriage with Heathcliff. It appeared dry and cold, but at the bottom was dotted in with pencil an obscure apology, and an entreaty for kind remembrance and reconciliation, if her proceeding had offended him, asserting that she could not help it then, and being done, she had now no power to repeal it. Linton did not reply to this, I believe, and in a fortnight more I got a long letter, which I considered odd coming from the pen of a bride just out of the honeymoon. I'll read it, for I keep it yet. Any relic of the dead is precious, if they were valued living. Dear Ellen, it begins, I came last night to Wuthering Heights, and heard for the first time that Catherine has been and is yet very ill. I must not write to her, I suppose, and my brother is either too angry or too distressed to answer what I sent him. Still, I must write to somebody, and the only choice left me is you. Inform Edgar that I'd give the world to see his face again, that my heart returned to Thrushcross Grange in twenty-four hours after I left it, and is there at this moment full of warm feelings for him and Catherine. I can't follow it, though. These words are underlined. They need not expect me, and they may draw what conclusions they please, taking care, however, to lay nothing at the door of my weak will or deficient affection. The remainder of the letter is for yourself alone. I want to ask you two questions. The first is, how did you contrive to preserve the common sympathies of human nature when you resided here? I cannot recognise any sentiment which those around share with me. The second question I have great interest in, it is this. Is Mr. Heathcliff a man? If so, is he mad? And if not, is he a devil? I shan't tell you my reasons for making this inquiry, but I beseech you to explain, if you can, what I have married. That is, when you call to see me. And you must call, Ellen, very soon. Don't write, but come and bring me something from Edgar. Now you shall hear how I have been received in my new home, as I am led to imagine the heights will be. It is to amuse myself that I dwell on such subjects as the lack of external comforts. They never occupy my thoughts, except at the moment when I miss them. I should laugh and dance for joy if I found their absence was the total of my miseries, and the rest was an unnatural dream. The sun set behind the grange as we turned on to the moors. By that I judged it to be six o'clock, and my companion halted half an hour to inspect the park and the gardens, and probably the place itself, as well as he could. So it was dark when we dismounted in the paved yard of the farmhouse, 
and your old fellow-servant Joseph issued out to receive us by the light of a dip-candle. He did it with a courtesy that redounded to his credit. His first act was to elevate his torch to a level with my face, squint malignantly, project his underlip, and turn away. Then he took the two horses and led them into the stables, reappearing for the purpose of locking the outer gate, as if we lived in an ancient castle. Heathcliff stayed to speak to him, and I entered the kitchen, a dingy, untidy hole. I dare say you would not know it. It is so changed since it was in your charge. By the fire stood a ruffianly child, strong in limb and dirty in garb, with a look of Catherine in his eyes and about his mouth. This is Edgar's legal nephew, I reflected, mine in a manner. I must shake hands, and, yes, I must kiss him. It is right to establish a good understanding at the beginning. I approached, and attempting to take his chubby fist, said, How do you do, my dear? He replied in a jargon I did not comprehend. "'Shall you and I be friends, Hareton?' was my next essay at conversation. An oath, and a threat to set Throttler on me if I did not frame off, rewarded my perseverance. "'Hey, Throttler, lad!' whispered the little wretch, rousing a half-bred bulldog from its lair in a corner. "'Now wilt thou be ganging?' he asked authoritatively. Love for my life urged a compliance. I stepped over the threshold to wait till the others should enter. Mr. Heathcliff was nowhere visible, and Joseph, whom I followed to the stables and requested to accompany me in, after staring and muttering to himself, screwed up his nose and replied, Mim, 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 did ever Christian body ear out like it, mincing and munching. "'How can I tell what you say?' "'I say I wish you to come with me into the house,' I cried, thinking him deaf, yet highly disgusted at his rudeness. "'None of me. I get somewhere else to do,' he answered, and continued his work, moving his lantern jaws meanwhile, and surveying my dress and countenance, the former a great deal too fine but the latter, I'm sure, as sad as he could desire, with sovereign contempt. I walked round the yard and through a wicket to another door, at which I took the liberty of knocking, in hopes some more civil servant might show himself. After a short suspense, it was opened by a tall, gaunt man, without neckerchief, and otherwise extremely slovenly. His features were lost in masses of shaggy hair that hung on his shoulders, and his eyes, too, were like a ghostly Catherine's, with all their beauty annihilated. "'What's your business here?' he demanded grimly. "'Who are you?' "'My name was Isabella Linton,' I replied. "'You've seen me before, sir.' I'm lately married to Mr. Heathcliff, and he has brought me here, I suppose, by your permission. Is he come back, then? asked the hermit, 
glaring like a hungry wolf. Yes, we came just now, I said, but he left me by the kitchen door, and when I would have gone in, your little boy played sentinel over the place and frightened me off by the help of a bulldog. It's well the hellish villain has kept his word, growled my future host, searching the darkness beyond me in expectation of discovering Heathcliff. And then he indulged in a soliloquy of execrations and threats of what he would have done had the fiend deceived him. I repented having tried this second entrance and was almost inclined to slip away before he finished cursing. But ere I could execute that intention, he ordered me in and shut and refastened the door. There was a great fire, and that was all the light in the huge apartment whose floor had grown a uniform grey, and the once brilliant pewter dishes, which used to attract my gaze when I was a girl, partook of a similar obscurity, created by tarnish and dust. I inquired whether I might call the maid and be conducted to a bedroom. Mr. Earnshaw vouchsafed no answer. He walked up and down with his hands in his pockets, apparently quite forgetting my presence, and his abstraction was evidently so deep, and his whole aspect so misanthropical, that I shrank from disturbing him again. You'll not be surprised, Ellen, at my feeling particularly cheerless, seated in worse than solitude on that inhospitable hearth, and remembering that four miles distant lay my delightful home, containing the only people I loved on earth. And there might as well be the Atlantic to part us, instead of those four miles. I could not overpass them. I questioned with myself, where must I turn for comfort? And, mind you, don't tell Edgar or Catherine. Above every sorrow beside, this rose preeminent, despair at finding nobody who could or would be my ally against Heathcliff. I had sought shelter at Wuthering Heights almost gladly, because I was secured by that arrangement from living alone with him. But he knew the people we were coming amongst, and he did not fear their intermeddling. I sat and thought a doleful time. The clock struck eight and nine, and still my companion paced to and fro, his head bent on his breast, and perfectly silent, unless a groan or a bitter ejaculation forced itself out at intervals. I listened to detect a woman's voice in the house, and filled the interim with wild regrets and dismal anticipations, which at last spoke audibly in irrepressible sighing and weeping. I was not aware how openly I grieved till Earnshaw halted opposite in his measured walk, and gave me a stare of newly awakened surprise. Taking advantage of his recovered attention, I exclaimed, I'm tired with my journey and I want to go to bed. Where is the maid-servant? Direct me to her as she won't come to me. We have none, he answered, 
You must wait on yourself. Where must I sleep then? I sobbed. I was beyond regarding self-respect, weighed down by fatigue and wretchedness. Joseph will show you Heathcliff's chamber, said he. Open that door, he's in there. I was going to obey, but he suddenly arrested me and added in the strangest tone, Be so good as to turn your lock and draw your boat. Don't omit it. Well, I said, but why, Mr. Earnshaw? I did not relish the notion of deliberately fastening myself in with Heathcliff. Look here, he replied, pulling from his waistcoat a curiously constructed pistol, having a double-edged spring-knife attached to the barrel. That's a great tempter to a desperate man, is it not? I cannot resist going up with this every night and trying his door. If once I find it open, he's done for. I do it invariably, even though the minute before I've been recalling a hundred reasons that should make me refrain. It is some devil that urges me to thwart my own schemes by killing him. You fight against that devil for love as long as you may. When the time comes... Not all the angels in heaven shall save him. I surveyed the weapon inquisitively. A hideous notion struck me. How powerful I should be, possessing such an instrument. I took it from his hand and touched the blade. He looked astonished at the expression my face assumed during a brief second. It was not horror. It was covetousness. He snatched the pistol back jealously, shut the knife, and returned it to its concealment. I don't care if you tell him, said he. Put him on his guard and watch for him. You know the terms we're on, I see. His danger does not shock you. What has Heathcliff done to you? I asked. In what has he wronged you to warrant this appalling hatred? Wouldn't it be wiser to bid him quit the house? No, thundered Earnshaw. Should he offer to leave me, he's a dead man. Persuade him to attempt it and you are a murderess. Am I to lose all without a chance of retrieval? Is Hareton to be a beggar? Oh, damnation, I will have it back. "'and I'll have his gold too, and then his blood, "'and hell shall have his soul. "'It will be ten times blacker with that guest "'than ever it was before.' "'You've acquainted me, Ellen, with your old master's habits. "'He is clearly on the verge of madness. "'He was so last night, at least. "'I shuddered to be near him.' and thought on the servant's ill-bred moroseness as comparatively agreeable. He now recommenced his moody walk, and I raised the latch and escaped into the kitchen. Joseph was bending over the fire, peering into a large pan that swung above it, and a wooden bowl of oatmeal stood on the settle close by. The contents of the pan began to boil, 
and he turned to plunge his hand into the bowl. I conjectured that this preparation was probably for our supper, and being hungry, I resolved it should be eatable. So, crying out sharply, I'll make the porridge, I removed the vessel out of his reach, and proceeded to take off my hat and riding habit. Mr. Earnshaw, I continued, directs me to wait on myself. I will. I'm not going to act the lady among you, for fear I should starve. Good Lord, he muttered, sitting down and stroking his ribbed stockings from the knee to the ankle. If there's to be fresh authorings, just when I'm getting used to two masters, if I'm on ever mistress set over me head, it's like time to be flitting. I never did think to see the day that I would leave the old place, but I doubt it's nigh at hand. This lamentation drew no notice from me. I went briskly to work, sighing to remember a period when it would have been all merry fun, but compelled speedily to drive off the remembrance. It racked me to recall past happiness, and the greater peril there was of conjuring up its apparition. The quicker the thibble ran round, and the faster the handfuls of meal fell into the water. Joseph beheld my style of cookery with growing indignation. There, he ejaculated, Ayrton, thou wilt sup thy porridge to neat. There be nought but lumps as big as my neve. There again, I'd fling in bowl and all if I were ye. There, pale to gilp off, and then he'll have done with it. Bang, bang, it's a mercy bottom isn't cleaved out. It was rather a rough mess, I own, when poured into the basins. Four had been provided, and a gallon pitcher of new milk was brought from the dairy, which Hareton seized and commenced drinking and spilling from the expansive lip. I expostulated and desired that he should have his in a mug. "'affirming that I could not taste the liquid treated so dirtily. "'The old cynic chose to be vastly offended at this nicety, "'assuring me repeatedly that the bairn was every bit as good as I, "'and every bit as wholesome, "'and wondering how I could fashion to be so conceited. "'Meanwhile the infant ruffian continued sucking, "'and glowered up at me defyingly as he slavered into the jug.' "'I shall have my supper in another room,' I said. "'Have you no place you call a parlour?' "'Parlour!' he echoed sneeringly. "'Parlour! Nay, we've no parlours. "'If you don't like we're company, there's maesters, "'and if you don't like maester, there's us.' "'Then I shall go upstairs,' I answered. "'Show me a chamber.' "'I put my basin on a tray.' and went myself to fetch some more milk. With great rumblings the fellow rose, and preceded me in my ascent. We mounted to the garrets. He opened a door now and then to look into the apartments we passed. "'Here's a ram,' he said at last, flinging back a cranky board on hinges. "'It's weel enough to eat a few porridge in. There's a pack of corn in corner there.' Meaterly clean. If you fear the mucky in your grand silk clothes, spread your handkerchief on top on. 
the ROM was a kind of lumber hole, smelling strong of malt and grain, various sacks of which articles were piled around, leaving a wide bare space in the middle. Why, man, I exclaimed, facing him angrily, this is not a place to sleep in. I wish to see my bedroom. Bedroom, he repeated in a tone of mockery. Yah, silt bedrooms there is. Yon's mine. He pointed into the second garret, only differing from the first in being more naked about the walls and having a large, low, curtainless bed with an indigo-coloured quilt at one end. What do I want with yours? I retorted. I suppose Mr. Heathcliff does not lodge at the top of the house, does he? Oh, it's Mr. Heathcliff's here wanting, cried he, as if making a new discovery. Couldn't he have said so at once? And then I would have telled ye about all this work, that that's just one ye cannot see. He allus keeps it locked, or nobody ever mills on but his cell. You've a nice house, Joseph, I could not refrain from observing and pleasant inmates, and I think the concentrated essence of all the madness in the world took up its abode in my brain the day I linked my fate with theirs. However, that is not to the present purpose. There are other rooms. For heaven's sake, be quick, and let me settle somewhere. He made no reply to this adjuration, only plodding doggedly down the wooden steps, and halting before an apartment which, from that halt and the superior quality of its furniture, I conjectured to be the best one. There was a carpet, a good one, but the pattern was obliterated by dust, a fireplace hung with cut paper dropping to pieces, a handsome oak bedstead with ample crimson curtains of rather expensive material and modern make, but they had evidently experienced rough usage. The valances hung in festoons, wrenched from their rings, and the iron rod supporting them was bent in an arc on one side, causing the drapery to trail upon the floor. The chairs were also damaged, many of them severely, and deep indentations deformed the panels of the walls. I was endeavouring to gather resolution for entering and taking possession when my fool of a guide announced— "'This is Masters. "'My supper by this time was cold, my appetite gone, and my patience exhausted. "'I insisted on being provided instantly with a place of refuge and means of repose. "'Where the devil?' began the religious elder. "'The Lord bless us, the Lord forgive us. "'Where the hell would ye gang, ye mad wearisome nout?' "'You've seen all but Ayrton's bit of a shamer. "'There's not another oil to lig down in in house.' "'I was so vexed I flung my tray and its contents on the ground "'and then seated myself at the stairs' head, "'hid my face in my hands and cried. "'Eh, eh!' exclaimed Joseph. "'Weel done, Miss Cathy, weel done, Miss Cathy. "'I'll see that the maesters will just tumble o'er them broken pots.' "'And then we's here summit. "'We's here how it's to be. "'Good for now, maddling. 
You deserve pining for this to Christmas, flinging the precious gifts of God under foot in your flesh and rages. But I'm mistaken if you show your spirit long. Will Heathcliff bide its bonny ways, think ye? I know but wish he may catch you that plisky. I know but wish he may. And so he went on, scolding to his den beneath, taking the candle with him, and I remained in the dark. The period of reflection succeeding this silly action compelled me to admit the necessity of smothering my pride and choking my wrath and bestirring myself to remove its effects. An unexpected aid presently appeared in the shape of Throttler, whom I now recognised as a son of our old skulker. It had spent its whelphood at the Grange, and was given by my father to Mr. Hindley. I fancy it knew me. It pushed its nose against mine by way of salute, and then hastened to devour the porridge, while I groped from step to step, collecting the shattered earthenware, and drying the spatters of milk from the banister with my pocket-handkerchief. Our labours were scarcely over when I heard Earnshaw's tread in the passage. My assistant tucked in his tail and pressed to the wall. I stole into the nearest doorway. The dog's endeavour to avoid him was unsuccessful, as I guessed by a scutter downstairs and a prolonged piteous yelping. I had better luck. He passed on, entered his chamber and shut the door. Directly after, Joseph came up with Hareton to put him to bed. I had found shelter in Hareton's room, and the old man on seeing me said, "'There's room for both ye and your pride now, I should think, in the house. It's empty. Ye may have it all to yourself, but him as Alice Max a third is sitch ill company.' Gladly did I take advantage of this intimation and the minute I flung myself into a chair by the fire, I nodded and slept. My slumber was deep and sweet, though over far too soon. Mr. Heathcliff awoke me. He had just come in and demanded, in his loving manner, what I was doing there. I told him the cause of my staying up so late, that he had the key of our room in his pocket. The adjective hour gave mortal offence. He swore it was not, nor ever should be mine, and he'd—but I'll not repeat his language, nor describe his habitual conduct. He is ingenious and unresting in seeking to gain my abhorrence. I sometimes wonder at him with an intensity that deadens my fear. Yet, I assure you, a tiger or a venomous serpent could not rouse terror in me equal to that which he wakens. He told me of Catherine's illness, and accused my brother of causing it, promising that I should be Edgar's proxy in suffering till he could get hold of him. I do hate him. I am wretched. I have been a fool. Beware of uttering one breath of this to anyone at the Grange. I shall expect you every day. Don't disappoint me. Isabella End of chapter 13 
Recording by Ruth Golding. Domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Chapter Fourteen. As soon as I had perused this epistle, I went to the master, and informed him that his sister had arrived at the Heights. And sent me a letter expressing her sorrow for Mrs. Linton's situation and her ardent desire to see him, with a wish that he would transmit to her as early as possible some token of forgiveness by me. Forgiveness," said Linton. "I have nothing to forgive her, Ellen. You may call at Wuthering Heights this afternoon if you like, and say that I am not angry." But I am sorry to have lost her, especially as I can never think she'll be happy. It is out of the question my going to see her. However, we are eternally divided, and should she really wish to oblige me, let her persuade the villain she has married to leave the country. And you won't write her a little note, sir? I asked imploringly. No, he answered. It is needless. My communication with Heathcliff's family shall be as sparing as his with mine. It shall not exist. Mister Edgar's coldness depressed me exceedingly, and all the way from the Grange I puzzled my brains how to put more heart into what he said when I repeated it, and how to soften his refusal of even a few lines to console Isabella. I dare say she'd been on the watch for me since morning. I saw her looking through the lattice as I came up the garden causeway, and I nodded to her, but she drew back as if afraid of being observed. I entered without knocking. There never was such a dreary, dismal scene as the formerly cheerful house presented. I must confess that if I had been in the young lady's place. I would at least have swept the hearth and wiped the tables with a duster, but she already partook of the pervading spirit of neglect which encompassed her. Her pretty face was wan and listless, her hair uncurled, some locks hanging lankly down, and some carelessly twisted round her head. Probably she had not touched her dress since yester evening. Hindley was not there. Mister Heathcliff sat at a table, turning over some papers in his pocket book. But he rose when I appeared, asked me how I did, quite friendly, and offered me a chair. He was the only thing there that seemed decent, and I thought he never looked better. So much had circumstances altered their positions. That he would certainly have struck a stranger as a born and bred gentleman, and his wife as a thorough little slattern. She came forward eagerly to greet me, and held out one hand to take the expected letter. I shook my head. She wouldn't understand the hint, but followed me to a sideboard where I went to lay my bonnet, and importuned me in a whisper to give her directly what I had brought. Heathcliff guessed the meaning of her manoeuvres and said, "If you have got anything for Isabella, 
as no doubt you have, Nelly. Give it to her. You needn't make a secret of it. We have no secrets between us. Oh, I have nothing, I replied, thinking it best to speak the truth at once. My master bid me tell his sister that she must not expect either a letter or a visit from him at present. He sends his love, ma'am, and his wishes for your happiness, and his pardon for the grief you have occasioned. But he thinks that after this time his household and the household here should drop into communication, as nothing could come of keeping it up. Mrs. Heathcliff's lip quivered slightly, and she returned to her seat in the window. Her husband took his stand on the hearthstone near me, and began to put questions concerning Catherine. I told him as much as I thought proper of her illness, and he extorted from me by cross-examination most of the facts connected with its origin. I blamed her as she deserved for bringing it all on herself, and ended by hoping that he would follow Mr. Linton's example and avoid future interference with his family for good or evil. "'Mrs. Linton is now just recovering,' I said. "'She'll never be like she was, but her life is spared, "'and if you really have a regard for her, "'you'll shun crossing her way again. "'Nay, you'll move out of this country entirely, "'and that you may not regret it, "'I'll inform you Catherine Linton is as different now "'from your old friend Catherine Earnshaw "'as that young lady is different from me.' Her appearance is changed greatly, her character much more so, and the person who is compelled of necessity to be her companion will only sustain his affection hereafter by the remembrance of what she once was, by common humanity and a sense of duty. That is quite possible, remarked Heathcliff, forcing himself to seem calm. "'Quite possible that your master should have nothing but common humanity "'and a sense of duty to fall back upon. "'But do you imagine that I shall leave Catherine to his duty and humanity? "'And can you compare my feelings respecting Catherine to his? "'Before you leave this house, I must exact a promise from you "'that you'll get me an interview with her. "'Consent or refuse, I will see her.' "'What do you say?' "'I say, Mr. Heathcliff,' I replied, "'you must not. "'You never shall through my means. "'Another encounter between you and the master "'would kill her altogether.' "'With your aid that may be avoided,' he continued. "'And should there be danger of such an event, "'should he be the cause of adding a single trouble more to her existence?' "'Why, I think I shall be justified in going to extremes. "'I wish you had sincerity enough "'to tell me whether Catherine would suffer greatly from his loss. "'The fear that she would restrains me. "'And there you see the distinction between our feelings. "'Had he been in my place and I in his, "'though I hated him with a hatred that turned my life to gall.' I never would have raised a hand against him. You may look incredulous if you please. 
I never would have banished him from her society as long as she desired his. The moment her regard ceased, I would have torn his heart out and drunk his blood, but till then, if you don't believe me, you don't know me, till then I would have died by inches before I touched a single hair of his head. And yet, I interrupted, you have no scruples in completely ruining all hopes of her perfect restoration by thrusting yourself into a remembrance now when she has nearly forgotten you and involving her in a new tumult of discord and distress. You suppose she has nearly forgotten me? He said. Oh, Nelly, you know she has not. You know as well as I do that for every thought she spends on Linton, she spends a thousand on me. At a most miserable period of my life, I had a notion of the kind. It haunted me on my return to the neighbourhood last summer. But only her own assurance could make me admit the horrible idea again. And then Linton would be nothing, nor Hindley, nor all the dreams that ever I dreamt. Two words would comprehend my future, death and hell. Existence after losing her would be hell. Yet I was a fool to fancy for a moment that she valued Edgar Linton's attachment more than mine. If he loved with all the powers of his puny being, he couldn't love as much in eighty years as I could in a day. And Catherine has a heart as deep as I have. The sea could be as readily contained in that horse trough as her whole affection be monopolised by him. To her she is scarcely a degree dearer to her than a dog or a horse. It is not in him to be loved like me. How can she love in him what he has not? Catherine and Edgar are as fond of each other as any two people can be, cried Isabella with sudden vivacity. No one has a right to talk in that manner, and I won't hear my brother depreciated in silence. Your brother is wondrous fond of you, too, isn't he? observed Heathcliff scornfully. He turns you adrift on the world with surprising alacrity. He is not aware of what I suffer, she replied. I didn't tell him that. You have been telling him something, then? You have written, have you? To say that I was married, I did write. You saw the note. And nothing since? No. My young lady is looking sadly the worse for her change of condition, I remarked. Somebody's love comes short in her case, obviously. Whose, I may guess, but perhaps I shouldn't say. I should guess it was her own, said Heathcliff. She degenerates into a mere slut. She is tired of trying to please me uncommonly early. You'd hardly credit it, but the very morrow of our wedding she was weeping to go home. However, she'll suit this house so much the better for not being over nice, and I'll take care she does not disgrace me by rambling abroad. 
"'Well, sir,' returned I, "'I hope you'll consider that Mrs. Heathcliff is accustomed to be looked after and waited on, "'and that she's been brought up like an only daughter, whom everyone was ready to serve. "'You must let her have a maid to keep things tidy about her, and you must treat her kindly.' "'Whatever be your notion of Mr. Edgar, "'you cannot doubt that she has a capacity for strong attachments, "'or she wouldn't have abandoned the elegancies and comforts "'and friends of her former home "'to fix contentedly in such a wilderness as this with you.' "'She abandoned them under a delusion,' he answered, "'picturing in me a hero of romance.' "'and expecting unlimited indulgences from my chivalrous devotion. "'I can hardly regard her in the light of a rational creature, "'so obstinately as she persisted in forming a fabulous notion of my character "'and acting on the false impressions she cherished. "'But at last I think she begins to know me.' I don't perceive the silly smiles and grimaces that provoked me at first, and the senseless incapability of discerning that I was in earnest when I gave her my opinion of her infatuation and herself. It was a marvellous effort of perspicacity to discover that I did not love her. I believed at one time no lessons could teach her that, and yet it is poorly learnt for this morning she announced as a piece of appalling intelligence that I had actually succeeded in making her hate me. A positive labour of Hercules, I assure you. If it be achieved, I have cause to return thanks. Can I trust your assertion, Isabella? Are you sure you hate me? If I let you alone for half a day, won't you come sighing and wheedling to me again?' I dare say she would rather I had seemed all tenderness before you. It wounds her vanity to have the truth exposed. But I don't care who knows that the passion was wholly on one side, and I never told her a lie about it. She cannot accuse me of showing one bit of deceitful softness. The first thing she saw me do on coming out of the Grange was to hang up her little dog. And when she pleaded for it, the first words I uttered were a wish that I had the hanging of every being belonging to her except one. Possibly she took that exception for herself. But no brutality disgusted her. I suppose she has an innate admiration of it, if only her precious person were secure from injury. Now, was it not the depth of absurdity? of genuine idiocy, for that pitiful, slavish, mean-minded brat to dream that I could love her. Tell you, Master Nelly, that I never in all my life met with such an abject thing as she is. She even disgraces the name of Linton. And I've sometimes relented from pure lack of invention in my experiments on what she could endure and still creep shamefully cringing back. But tell him also to set his fraternal and magisterial heart at ease, that I keep strictly within the limits of the law. I have avoided up to this period giving her the slightest right 
to claim a separation. And what's more, she thanked nobody for dividing us. If she desired to go, she might. The nuisance of her presence outweighs the gratification to be derived from tormenting her. Mr. Heathcliff, said I, this is the talk of a madman. Your wife most likely is convinced you are mad, and for that reason she has borne with you hitherto. But now that you say she may go, she'll doubtless avail herself of the permission. You are not so bewitched, ma'am, are you, as to remain with him of your own accord? Take care, Ellen, answered Isabella, her eyes sparkling irefully. There was no misdoubting by their expression the full success of her partner's endeavours to make himself detested. "'Don't put faith in a single word he speaks. "'He's a lying fiend, a monster, and not a human being. "'I've been told I might leave him before, "'and I've made the attempt, but I dare not repeat it. "'Only, Ellen, promise you'll not mention a syllable "'of his infamous conversation to my brother or Catherine. "'Whatever he may pretend, "'he wishes to provoke Edgar to desperation.' He says he has married me on purpose to obtain power over him, and he shan't obtain it. I'll die first. I just hope, I pray, that he may forget his diabolical prudence and kill me. The single pleasure I can imagine is to die, or to see him dead. There, that will do for the present, said Heathcliff. If you are called upon in a court of law, you'll remember her language, Nelly. And take a good look at that countenance. She's near the point which would suit me. No, you're not fit to be your own guardian, Isabella, now. And I, being your legal protector, must retain you in my custody, however distasteful the obligation may be. Go upstairs. I have something to say to Ellen Dean in private. That's not the way. Upstairs, I tell you. Why, this is the road upstairs, child. He seized and thrust her from the room and returned muttering. I have no pity. I have no pity. The more the worms writhe, the more I yearn to crush out their entrails. It is a moral teething, and I grind with greater energy in proportion to the increase of pain. Do you understand what the word pity means? I said, hastening to resume my bonnet. Did you ever feel a touch of it in your life? Put that down, he interrupted, perceiving my intention to depart. You are not going yet. Come here now, Nelly. I must either persuade or compel you to aid me in fulfilling my determination to see Catherine, and that without delay. I swear that I meditate no harm. I don't desire to cause any disturbance, or to exasperate or insult Mr. Linton. I only wish to hear from herself how she is, and why she has been ill and to ask if anything that I could do would be of use to her. 
Last night I was in the Grange Garden six hours, and I'll return there tonight, and every night I'll haunt the place, and every day till I find an opportunity of entering. If Edgar Linton meets me, I shall not hesitate to knock him down and give him enough to ensure his quiescence while I stay. If his servants oppose me, I shall threaten them off with these pistols. But wouldn't it be better to prevent my coming in contact with them or their master? And you could do it so easily. I'd warn you when I came, and then you might let me in unobserved as soon as she was alone, and watch till I departed, your conscience quite calm. You would be hindering mischief. I protested against playing that treacherous part in my employer's house, and besides, I urged the cruelty and selfishness of his destroying Mrs. Linton's tranquillity for his satisfaction. The commonest occurrence startles her painfully, I said. She's all nerves, and she couldn't bear the surprise I'm positive. Don't persist, sir, or else I shall be obliged to inform my master of your designs, and he'll take measures to secure his house and its inmates from any such unwarrantable intrusions. In that case, I'll take measures to secure you, woman, exclaimed Heathcliff. You shall not leave Wuthering Heights till tomorrow morning. It is a foolish story to assert that Catherine could not bear to see me, and as to surprising her, I don't desire it. You must prepare her. Ask her if I may come. You say she never mentions my name, and that I'm never mentioned to her. To whom should she mention me, if I'm a forbidden topic in the house? She thinks you are all spies for her husband. Oh, I've no doubt she's in hell among you. I guess by her silence as much as anything what she feels. You say she is often restless and anxious-looking. Is that a proof of tranquillity? You talk of her mind being unsettled. How the devil could it be otherwise in her frightful isolation? And that insipid, paltry creature, attending her from duty and humanity, from pity and charity. He might as well plant an oak in a flower-pot and expect it to thrive, as imagine he can restore her to vigour in the soil of his shallow cares. Let us settle it at once. Will you stay here? And am I to fight my way to Catherine over Linton and his footman? Or will you be my friend, as you have been hitherto, and do what I request? Decide, because there is no reason for my lingering another minute, if you persist in your stubborn ill-nature. Well, Mr. Lockwood, I argued and complained, and flatly refused him fifty times but in the long run he forced me to an agreement. I engaged to carry a letter from him to my mistress, and should she consent, I promised to let him have intelligence of Linton's next absence from home, when he might come and get in as he was able. I wouldn't be there, 
and my fellow servants should be equally out of the way. Was it right or wrong? I fear it was wrong, though expedient. I thought I prevented another explosion by my compliance. And I thought, too, it might create a favourable crisis in Catherine's mental illness. And then I remembered Mr. Edgar's stern rebuke of my carrying tales, and I tried to smooth away all disquietude on the subject by affirming with frequent iteration that that betrayal of trust, if it merited so harsh an appellation, should be the last. Notwithstanding, my journey homeward was sadder than my journey thither, and many misgivings I had ere I could prevail on myself to put the missive into Mrs. Linton's hand. But here is Kenneth. I'll go down and tell him how much better you are. My history is dree, as we say, and will serve to while away another morning. Dree and dreary, I reflected as the good woman descended to receive the doctor, and not exactly of the kind which I should have chosen to amuse me. But never mind, I'll extract wholesome medicines from Mrs. Dean's bitter herbs, and firstly, let me beware of the fascination that lurks in Catherine Heathcliff's brilliant eyes. I should be in a curious taking if I surrendered my heart to that young person, and the daughter turned out a second edition of the mother. End of chapter 14 Recording by Ruth Golding Recording by Ruth Golding Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte Chapter 15 Another week over, and I am so many days nearer health and spring. I have now heard all my neighbours' history at different sittings, as the housekeeper could spare time from more important occupations. I'll continue it in her own words, only a little condensed. She is, on the whole, a very fair narrator, and I don't think I could improve her style. In the evening, she said, the evening of my visit to the Heights, I knew, as well as if I saw him, that Mr. Heathcliff was about the place, and I shunned going out, because I still carried his letter in my pocket, and didn't want to be threatened or teased any more. I had made up my mind not to give it till my master went out somewhere, as I could not guess how its receipt would affect Catherine. The consequence was that it did not reach her before the lapse of three days. The fourth was Sunday, and I brought it into her room after the family were gone to church. There was a man-servant left to keep the house with me and we generally made a practice of locking the doors during the hours of service. But on that occasion the weather was so warm and pleasant that I set them wide open, and to fulfil my engagement, as I knew who would be coming, I told my companion that the mistress wished very much for some oranges, and he must run over to the village and get a few, to be paid for on the morrow. He departed, and I went upstairs. 
Mrs. Linton sat in a loose white dress, with a light shawl over her shoulders, in the recess of the open window, as usual. Her thick, long hair had been partly removed at the beginning of her illness, and now she wore it simply combed in its natural tresses over her temples and neck. Her appearance was altered, as I had told Heathcliff, but when she was calm, there seemed unearthly beauty in the change. The flash of her eyes had been succeeded by a dreamy and melancholy softness. They no longer gave the impression of looking at the objects around her. They appeared always to gaze beyond and far beyond. You would have said, out of this world. Then the paleness of her face, its haggard aspect having vanished as she recovered flesh, and the peculiar expression arising from her mental state, though painfully suggestive of their causes, added to the touching interest which she awakened, and, invariably to me, I know, and to any person who saw her, I should think, refuted more tangible proofs of convalescence, and stamped her as one doomed to decay. A book lay spread on the sill before her, and the scarcely perceptible wind fluttered its leaves at intervals. I believe Linton had laid it there, for she never endeavoured to divert herself with reading or occupation of any kind, and he would spend many an hour in trying to entice her attention to some subject which had formerly been her amusement. She was conscious of his aim, and in her better moods endured his efforts placidly, only showing their uselessness by now and then suppressing a wearied sigh, and checking him at last with the saddest of smiles and kisses. At other times she would turn petulantly away, and hide her face in her hands, or even push him off angrily, and then he took care to let her alone, for he was certain of doing no good. Gimmerton chapel bells were still ringing, and the full, mellow flow of the beck in the valley came soothingly on the ear. It was a sweet substitute for the yet absent murmur of the summer foliage, which drowned that music about the grange when the trees were in leaf. At Wuthering Heights it always sounded on quiet days following a great thaw or a season of steady rain, and of Wuthering Heights Catherine was thinking as she listened. That is, if she thought or listened at all. But she had the vague, distant look I mentioned before, which expressed no recognition of material things, either by ear or eye. "'There's a letter for you, Mrs. Linton,' I said, gently inserting it in one hand that rested on her knee. "'You must read it immediately, because it wants an answer.' "'Shall I break the seal?' "'Yes,' she answered, without altering the direction of her eyes. "'I opened it. It was very short. "'Now,' I continued, "'read it.' "'She drew away her hand and let it fall. "'I replaced it in her lap, 
and stood waiting till it should please her to glance down. But that movement was so long delayed that at last I resumed, "'Must I read it, ma'am? It is from Mr. Heathcliff.' There was a start and a troubled gleam of recollection, and a struggle to arrange her ideas. She lifted the letter and seemed to peruse it, and when she came to the signature, she sighed. Yet still I found she had not gathered its import, for, upon my desiring to hear her reply, she merely pointed to the name and gazed at me with mournful and questioning eagerness. "'Well, he wishes to see you,' said I, guessing her need of an interpreter. He's in the garden by this time, and impatient to know what answer I shall bring. As I spoke, I observed a large dog lying on the sunny grass beneath, raise its ears as if about to bark, and then, smoothing them back, announce by a wag of the tail that someone approached whom it did not consider a stranger. Mrs. Linton bent forward and listened breathlessly, the minute after, a step traversed the hall. The open house was too tempting for Heathcliff to resist walking in. Most likely he supposed that I was inclined to shirk my promise, and so resolved to trust to his own audacity. With straining eagerness, Catherine gazed towards the entrance of her chamber. He did not hit the right room directly. She motioned me to admit him, but he found it out ere I could reach the door, and in a stride or two was at her side, and had her grasped in his arms. He neither spoke nor loosed his hold for some five minutes, during which period he bestowed more kisses than ever he gave in his life before, I dare say. But then my mistress had kissed him first and I plainly saw that he could hardly bear for downright agony to look into her face. The same conviction had stricken him as me from the instant he beheld her, that there was no prospect of ultimate recovery there. She was fated, sure to die. Oh, Cathy, oh, my life! "'How can I bear it?' was the first sentence he uttered, in a tone that did not seek to disguise his despair. And now he stared at her so earnestly that I thought the very intensity of his gaze would bring tears into his eyes. But they burned with anguish. They did not melt. "'What now?' said Catherine, "'leaning back and returning his look with a suddenly clouded brow. "'Her humour was a mere vein for constantly varying caprices. "'You and Edgar have broken my heart, Heathcliff, "'and you both come to bewail the deed to me, "'as if you were the people to be pitied. "'I shall not pity you, not I. "'You have killed me, and thriven on it, I think.' "'How strong you are! "'How many years do you mean to live after I am gone?' "'Heathcliff had knelt on one knee to embrace her, 
He attempted to rise, but she seized his hair and kept him down. I wish I could hold you, she continued bitterly, till we were both dead. I shouldn't care what you suffered. I care nothing for your sufferings. Why shouldn't you suffer? I do. Will you forget me? Will you be happy when I'm in the earth? Will you say twenty years hence, that's the grave of Catherine Earnshaw? I loved her long ago and was wretched to lose her, but it is past. I've loved many others since. My children are dearer to me than she was, and at death I shall not rejoice that I'm going to her. I shall be sorry that I must leave them. Will you say so, Heathcliff? Don't torture me till I'm as mad as yourself, cried he, wrenching his head free and grinding his teeth. The two to a cool spectator made a strange and fearful picture. Well might Catherine deem that heaven would be a land of exile to her, unless with her mortal body she cast away her moral character also. Her present countenance had a wild vindictiveness in its white cheek, and a bloodless lip and scintillating eye, and she retained in her closed fingers a portion of the locks she had been grasping. As to her companion, while raising himself with one hand, he had taken her arm with the other, and so inadequate was his stock of gentleness to the requirements of her condition— that on his letting go I saw four distinct impressions left blue in the colourless skin. "'Are you possessed with a devil?' he pursued savagely. "'To talk in that manner to me when you are dying? "'Do you reflect that all those words will be branded in my memory "'and eating deeper eternally after you have left me?' You know you lie to say I have killed you. And, Catherine, you know that I could as soon forget you as my existence. Is it not sufficient for your infernal selfishness that while you are at peace I shall writhe in the torments of hell? I shall not be at peace, mourned Catherine recalled to a sense of physical weakness by the violent, unequal throbbing of her heart, which beat visibly and audibly under this excess of agitation. She said nothing further till the paroxysm was over. Then she continued more kindly, "'I'm not wishing you greater torment than I have, Heathcliff. I only wish us never to be parted.' And should a word of mine distress you hereafter, think I feel the same distress underground, and for my own sake, forgive me. Come here and kneel down again. You never harmed me in your life. Nay, if you nurse anger, that will be worse to remember than my harsh words. Won't you come here again? Do! Heathcliff went to the back of her chair and leant over, but not so far as to let her see his face, 
which was livid with emotion. She bent round to look at him. He would not permit it. Turning abruptly, he walked to the fireplace, where he stood silent with his back towards us. Mrs. Linton's glance followed him suspiciously. Every movement woke a new sentiment in her. After a pause and a prolonged gaze, she resumed, addressing me in accents of indignant disappointment. Oh, you see, Nelly, he would not relent a moment to keep me out of the grave. That is how I'm loved. Well, never mind. That is not my Heathcliff. I shall love mine yet and take him with me. He's in my soul. And, added she musingly, the thing that irks me most is this shattered prison after all. I'm tired of being enclosed here. I'm wearying to escape into that glorious world and to be always there, not seeing it dimly through tears and yearning for it through the walls of an aching heart, but really with it and in it. Nelly, you think you are better and more fortunate than I. In full health and strength, you are sorry for me. Very soon that will be altered. I shall be sorry for you. I shall be incomparably beyond and above you all. I wonder he won't be near me. She went on to herself. I thought he wished it. Heathcliff, dear, you should not be sullen now. Do come to me, Heathcliff. In her eagerness she rose and supported herself on the arm of the chair. At that earnest appeal he turned to her, looking absolutely desperate. His eyes, wide and wet, at last flashed fiercely on her. His breast heaved convulsively. An instant they held asunder, and then, how they met I hardly saw, but Catherine made a spring and he caught her, and they were locked in an embrace from which I thought my mistress would never be released alive. In fact, to my eyes, she seemed directly insensible. He flung himself into the nearest seat, and on my approaching hurriedly to ascertain if she had fainted, he gnashed at me and foamed like a mad dog, and gathered her to him with greedy jealousy. I did not feel as if I were in the company of a creature of my own species. It appeared that he would not understand, though I spoke to him, so I stood off and held my tongue in great perplexity. A movement of Catherine's relieved me a little presently. She put up her hand to clasp his neck and bring her cheek to his as he held her, while he, in return, covering her with frantic caresses, said wildly, you teach me now how cruel you've been, cruel and false. Why did you despise me? Why did you betray your own heart, Cathy? I have not one word of comfort. You deserve this. You have killed yourself. 
Yes, you may kiss me and cry and wring out my kisses and tears. They'll blight you. They'll damn you. You loved me. Then what right had you to leave me? What right? Answer me for the poor fancy you felt for Linton. Because misery and degradation and death and nothing that God or Satan could inflict would have parted us, you of your own will did it. I have not broken your heart. You have broken it. And in breaking it, you have broken mine. So much the worse for me that I am strong. Do I want to live? What kind of living will it be when you... Oh, God! Would you like to live with your soul in the grave? Let me alone, let me alone, sobbed Catherine. If I've done wrong, I'm dying for it. It is enough. You left me too, but I won't upbraid you. I forgive you. Forgive me. It is hard to forgive and to look at those eyes and feel those wasted hands, he answered. Kiss me again and don't let me see your eyes. I forgive what you have done to me. I love my murderer, but yours, how can I? They were silent, their faces hid against each other and washed by each other's tears. At least I suppose the weeping was on both sides, as it seemed Heathcliff could weep on a great occasion like this. I grew very uncomfortable meanwhile, for the afternoon wore fast away. The man whom I had sent off returned from his errand, and I could distinguish, by the shine of the western sun up the valley, a concourse thickening outside Gimmerton Chapel porch. "'Service is over,' I announced. "'My master will be here in half an hour.' Heathcliff groaned a curse and strained Catherine closer. She never moved. Ere long I perceived a group of the servants passing up the road towards the kitchen wing. Mr. Linton was not far behind. He opened the gate himself and sauntered slowly up, probably enjoying the lovely afternoon that breathed as soft as summer. "'Now he is here!' I exclaimed. For heaven's sake, hurry down. You'll not meet anyone on the front stairs. Do be quick, and stay among the trees till he is fairly in. I must go, Cathy, said Heathcliff, seeking to extricate himself from his companion's arms. But if I live, I'll see you again before you are asleep. I won't stray five yards from your window. You must not go, she answered holding him as firmly as her strength allowed. You shall not, I tell you. For one hour, he pleaded earnestly. Not for one minute, she replied. I must. Linton will be up immediately. 
persisted the alarmed intruder. He would have risen and unfixed her fingers by the act. She clung fast, gasping. There was mad resolution in her face. No! she shrieked. Oh, don't! Don't go! It is the last time. Edgar will not hurt us. Heathcliff, I shall die. I shall die. Damn the fool! There he is! cried Heathcliff, sinking back into his seat. Hush, my darling. Hush, hush, Catherine. I'll stay. If he shot me so, I'd expire with a blessing on my lips. And there they were, fast again. I heard my master mounting the stairs. The cold sweat ran from my forehead. I was horrified. Are you going to listen to her ravings? I said passionately. She does not know what she says. Will you ruin her because she has not wit to help herself? Get up. You could be free instantly. That is the most diabolical deed that ever you did. We are all done for, master, mistress, and servant. I wrung my hands and cried out, and Mr. Linton hastened his step at the noise. In the midst of my agitation, I was sincerely glad to observe that Catherine's arms had fallen relaxed and her head hung down. She's fainted or dead, I thought. So much the better. Far better that she should be dead than lingering a burden and a misery maker to all about her. Edgar sprang to his unbidden guest. "'blanched with astonishment and rage. "'What he meant to do I cannot tell, "'however the other stopped all demonstrations at once "'by placing the lifeless-looking form in his arms. "'Look there,' he said. "'Unless you be a fiend helper first, "'then you shall speak to me.' "'He walked into the parlour and sat down.' Mr. Linton summoned me, and with great difficulty, and after resorting to many means, we managed to restore her to sensation. But she was all bewildered. She sighed and moaned, and knew nobody. Edgar, in his anxiety for her, forgot her hated friend. I did not. I went at the earliest opportunity and besought him to depart— "'affirming that Catherine was better, "'and he should hear from me in the morning "'how she passed the night. "'I shall not refuse to go out of doors,' he answered, "'but I shall stay in the garden. "'And, Nelly, mind you keep your word tomorrow. "'I shall be under those larch trees. "'Mind, or I pay another visit, "'whether Linton be in or not.' He sent a rapid glance through the half-open door of the chamber, and ascertaining that what I stated was apparently true, delivered the house of his luckless presence. End of chapter 15 Recording by Ruth Golding Main Recording by Ruth Golding Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte Chapter 16 about twelve o'clock that night was born the Catherine you saw at Wuthering Heights. 
a puny seven months child, and two hours after the mother died, having never recovered sufficient consciousness to miss Heathcliff or to know Edgar. The latter's distraction at his bereavement is a subject too painful to be dwelt on. Its after-effects showed how deep the sorrow sunk. A great addition in my eyes was his being left without an heir. I bemoaned that as I gazed on the feeble orphan, and I mentally abused old Linton for what was only natural partiality, the securing his estate to his own daughter instead of his son's. An unwelcomed infant it was, poor thing. It might have wailed out of life, and nobody cared a morsel during those first hours of existence. We redeemed the neglect afterwards, but its beginning was as friendless as its end is likely to be. Next morning, bright and cheerful out of doors, stole softened in through the blinds of the silent room, and suffused the couch and its occupant with a mellow, tender glow. Edgar Linton had his head laid on the pillow and his eyes shut. His young and fair features were almost as death-like as those of the form beside him, and almost as fixed. But his was the hush of exhausted anguish, and hers of perfect peace. Her brow smooth, her lids closed, her lips wearing the expression of a smile. No angel in heaven could be more beautiful than she appeared, and I partook of the infinite calm in which she lay. My mind was never in a holier frame than while I gazed on that untroubled image of divine rest. I instinctively echoed the words she had uttered a few hours before, incomparably beyond and above us all. Whether still on earth or now in heaven, her spirit is at home with God. I don't know if it be a peculiarity in me, but I am seldom otherwise than happy while watching in the chamber of death, should no frenzied or despairing mourner share the duty with me. I see a repose that neither earth nor hell can break, and I feel an assurance of the endless and shadowless hereafter, the eternity they have entered, where life is boundless in its duration, and love in its sympathy, and joy in its fullness. I noticed on that occasion how much selfishness there is, even in a love like Mr. Linton's, when he so regretted Catherine's blessed release. To be sure, one might have doubted, after the wayward and impatient existence she had led, whether she merited a haven of peace at last. One might doubt in seasons of cold reflection but not then, in the presence of her corpse. It asserted its own tranquillity, which seemed a pledge of equal quiet to its former inhabitant. Do you believe such people are happy in the other world, sir? 
I'd give a great deal to know. I declined answering Mrs. Dean's question, which struck me as something heterodox. She proceeded, Retracing the course of Catherine Linton, I fear we have no right to think she is, but we'll leave her with her maker. The master looked asleep, and I ventured soon after sunrise to quit the room and steal out to the pure, refreshing air. The servants thought me gone to shake off the drowsiness of my protracted watch. In reality, my chief motive was seeing Mr. Heathcliff. If he had remained among the larches all night, he would have heard nothing of the stir at the Grange, unless perhaps he might catch the gallop of the messenger going to Gimmerton. If he had come nearer, he would probably be aware, from the lights flitting to and fro, and the opening and shutting of the outer doors, that all was not right within. I wished, yet feared, to find him. I felt the terrible news must be told, and I longed to get it over, but how to do it I did not know. He was there, at least a few yards further in the park, leant against an old ash tree, his hat off, and his hair soaked with the dew that had gathered on the budded branches and fell pattering round him. He had been standing a long time in that position, for I saw a pair of oozels passing and repassing scarcely three feet from him, busy in building their nest, and regarding his proximity no more than that of a piece of timber. They flew off at my approach, and he raised his eyes and spoke. "'She's dead,' he said. "'I've not waited for you to learn that.' Put your handkerchief away, don't snivel before me. Damn you all, she wants none of your tears. I was weeping as much for him as her. We do sometimes pity creatures that have none of the feeling either for themselves or others. When I first looked into his face, I perceived that he had got intelligence of the catastrophe, and a foolish notion struck me that his heart was quelled, and he prayed, because his lips moved and his gaze was bent on the ground. "'Yes, she's dead,' I answered, checking my sobs and drying my cheeks. "'Gone to heaven, I hope, where we may every one join her, if we take due warning and leave our evil ways to follow good.' "'Did she take due warning, then?' asked Heathcliff, attempting a sneer. Did she die like a saint? Come, give me a true history of the event. How did... He endeavoured to pronounce the name, but could not manage it, and, compressing his mouth, he held a silent combat with his inward agony, defying, meanwhile, my sympathy with an unflinching, ferocious stare. How did she die? He resumed at last, fain notwithstanding his hardihood to have a support behind him, for after the struggle he trembled in spite of himself to his very finger-ends. Poor wretch, I thought, you have a heart and nerves the same as your brother men, 
Why should you be anxious to conceal them? Your pride cannot blind God. You tempt him to wring them till he forces a cry of humiliation. Quietly as a lamb, I answered aloud. She drew a sigh and stretched herself like a child reviving and sinking again to sleep. And five minutes after, I felt one little pulse at her heart and nothing more. And did she ever mention me? He asked, hesitating, as if he dreaded the answer to his question would introduce details that he could not bear to hear. Her senses never returned. She recognised nobody from the time you left her, I said. She lies with a sweet smile on her face, and her latest ideas wandered back to pleasant early days. Her life closed in a gentle dream. May she wake as kindly in the other world. May she wake in torment, he cried with frightful vehemence. "'stamping his foot and groaning in a sudden paroxysm of ungovernable passion. "'Why, she's a liar to the end! Where is she? Not there! Not in heaven! Not perished! Where? "'Oh, you said you cared nothing for my sufferings, and I pray one prayer. "'I repeat it till my tongue stiffens.' Catherine Earnshaw, may you not rest as long as I am living. You said I killed you. Haunt me, then. The murdered do haunt their murderers, I believe. I know that ghosts have wandered on earth. Be with me always. Take any form. Drive me mad. Only do not leave me in this abyss where I cannot find you. Oh, God, it is unutterable. I cannot live without my life. I cannot live without my soul. He dashed his head against the knotted trunk, and lifting up his eyes, howled, not like a man, but like a savage beast, being goaded to death with knives and spears. I observed several splashes of blood about the bark of the tree, and his hand and forehead were both stained. Probably the scene I witnessed was a repetition of others acted during the night. It hardly moved my compassion. It appalled me. Still, I felt reluctant to quit him so. But the moment he recollected himself enough to notice me watching, he thundered a command for me to go, and I obeyed. It was beyond my skill to quiet or console. Mrs. Linton's funeral was appointed to take place on the Friday following her decease. Until then her coffin remained uncovered and strewn with flowers and scented leaves in the great drawing-room. Linton spent his days and nights there, a sleepless guardian, and a circumstance concealed from all but me, Heathcliff spent his nights at least outside, equally a stranger to repose. I held no communication with him. Still I was conscious of his design to enter if he could, 
and on the Tuesday a little after dark, when my master, from sheer fatigue, had been compelled to retire a couple of hours, I went and opened one of the windows, moved by his perseverance to give him a chance of bestowing on the faded image of his idol one final adieu. He did not omit to avail himself of the opportunity, cautiously and briefly, too cautiously to betray his presence by the slightest noise. Indeed, I shouldn't have discovered that he had been there, except for the disarrangement of the drapery about the corpse's face, and for observing on the floor a curl of light hair, fastened with a silver thread, which, on examination, I ascertained to have been taken from a locket hung round Catherine's neck. Heathcliff had opened the trinket and cast out its contents, replacing them by a black lock of his own. I twisted the two and enclosed them together. Mr. Earnshaw was, of course, invited to attend the remains of his sister to the grave. He sent no excuse, but he never came, so that, besides her husband, the mourners were wholly composed of tenants and servants. Isabella was not asked. The place of Catherine's interment, to the surprise of the villagers, was neither in the chapel under the carved monument of the Lintons, nor yet by the tombs of her own relations outside. It was dug on a green slope in a corner of the kirkyard, where the wall is so low that heath and bilberry plants have climbed over it from the moor, and peat mould almost buries it. Her husband lies in the same spot now, and they have each a simple headstone above and a plain grey block at their feet to mark the graves. End of chapter 16 Recording by Ruth Golding Recording by Ruth Golding Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte Chapter 17 that Friday made the last of our fine days for a month. In the evening the weather broke. The wind shifted from south to northeast and brought rain first and then sleet and snow. On the morrow one could hardly imagine that there had been three weeks of summer. The primroses and crocuses were hidden under wintry drifts. The larks were silent the young leaves of the early trees smitten and blackened, and dreary and chill and dismal that morrow did creep over. My master kept his room. I took possession of the lonely parlour, converting it into a nursery, and there I was, sitting with the moaning doll of a child laid on my knee, rocking it to and fro, and watching, meanwhile, the still driving flakes build up the uncurtained window, when the door opened, and some person entered out of breath and laughing. My anger was greater than my astonishment for a minute. I supposed it one of the maids, and I cried, "'Have done! How dare you show your giddiness here! What would Mr. Linton say if he heard you?' "'Excuse me!' answered a familiar voice. 
"'But I know Edgar is in bed, and I cannot stop myself.' With that the speaker came forward to the fire, panting and holding her hand to her side. "'I have run the whole way from Wuthering Heights,' she continued after a pause. "'Except where I've flown. I couldn't count the number of falls I've had. Oh, I'm aching all over. Don't be alarmed.' "'There shall be an explanation as soon as I can give it. "'Only just have the goodness to step out "'and order the carriage to take me on to Gimmerton, "'and tell a servant to seek up a few clothes in my wardrobe.' "'The intruder was Mrs. Heathcliff. "'She certainly seemed in no laughing predicament. "'Her hair streamed on her shoulders, dripping with snow and water. "'She was dressed in the girlish dress she commonly wore, "'befitting her age more than her position, "'a low frock with short sleeves, "'and nothing on either head or neck. "'The frock was of light silk "'and clung to her with wet, "'and her feet were protected merely by thin slippers. "'Add to this a deep cut under one ear, "'which only the cold prevented from bleeding profusely, "'a white face scratched and bruised, and a frame hardly able to support itself through fatigue, and you may fancy my first fright was not much allayed when I had had leisure to examine her. "'My dear young lady,' I exclaimed, "'I'll stir nowhere and hear nothing till you have removed every article of your clothes and put on dry things. And certainly you shall not go to Gimmerton to-night, so it is needless to order the carriage.' "'Certainly I shall,' she said, "'walking or riding, "'yet I've no objection to dress myself decently. "'And, ah, see how it flows down my neck now. "'The fire does make it smart.' "'She insisted on my fulfilling her directions "'before she would let me touch her, "'and not till after the coachman had been instructed to get ready "'and a maid set to pack up some necessary attire.' did I obtain her consent for binding the wound and helping to change her garments. "'Now, Ellen,' she said, when my task was finished, and she was seated in an easy-chair on the hearth with a cup of tea before her, "'you sit down opposite me and put poor Catherine's baby away. I don't like to see it. You mustn't think I care little for Catherine, because I behaved so foolishly on entering. I've cried too, bitterly.' "'Yes, more than anyone else has reason to cry. "'We parted unreconciled, you remember, "'and I shan't forgive myself. "'But for all that, I was not going to sympathise with him, "'the brute beast. "'Oh, give me the poker! "'This is the last thing of his I have about me!' "'She slipped the gold ring from her third finger "'and threw it on the floor. "'I'll smash it!' she continued, "'striking it with childish spite. "'And then I'll burn it!' "'And she took and dropped the misused article among the coals. "'There! He shall buy another if he gets me back again. "'He'd be capable of coming to seek me, to tease Edgar. "'I dare not stay, lest that notion should possess his wicked head. "'And besides, Edgar has not been kind, has he? "'And I won't come suing for his assistance, "'nor will I bring him into more trouble.' "'Necessity compelled me to seek shelter here, "'though if I had not learned he was out of the way, "'I'd have halted at the kitchen, washed my face, warmed myself, "'got you to bring what I wanted, 
and departed again to anywhere out of the reach of my accursed, of that incarnate goblin. Ah, he was in such a fury. If he had caught me, it's a pity Earnshaw is not his match in strength. I wouldn't have run till I'd seen him all but demolished had Hindley been able to do it. Well, don't talk so fast, miss, I interrupted. You'll disorder the handkerchief I've tied round your face and make the cut bleed again. Drink your tea and take breath and give over laughing. Laughter is sadly out of place under this roof and in your condition. An undeniable truth, she replied. Listen to that child. It maintains a constant wail. Send it out of my hearing for an hour. I shan't stay any longer. I rang the bell and committed it to a servant's care, and then I inquired what had urged her to escape from Wuthering Heights in such an unlikely plight, and where she meant to go, as she refused remaining with us. I ought, and I wished, to remain, answered she, to cheer Edgar and take care of the baby, for two things— and because the Grange is my right home. But I tell you he wouldn't let me. Do you think he could bear to see me grow fat and merry, could bear to think that we were tranquil and not resolve on poisoning our comfort? Now I have the satisfaction of being sure that he detests me, to the point of its annoying him seriously to have me within earshot or eyesight. I notice when I enter his presence the muscles of his countenance are involuntarily distorted into an expression of hatred, partly arising from his knowledge of the good causes I have to feel that sentiment for him, and partly from original aversion. It is strong enough to make me feel pretty certain that he would not chase me over England, supposing I contrived a clear escape, and therefore I must get quite away. I've recovered from my first desire to be killed by him. I'd rather he killed himself. He has extinguished my love effectually, and so I'm at my ease. I can recollect yet how I loved him, and can dimly imagine that I could still be loving him if— No, no. Even if he had doted on me, the devilish nature would have revealed its existence somehow. Catherine had an awfully perverted taste to esteem him so dearly, knowing him so well. Monster! Would that he could be blotted out of creation and out of my memory. Hush, hush, he's a human being, I said. Be more charitable. There are worse men than he is yet. He's not a human being, she retorted and he has no claim on my charity. I gave him my heart, and he took and pinched it to death and flung it back to me. People feel with their hearts, Ellen, and since he has destroyed mine, I have not power to feel for him, and I would not, though he groaned from this to his dying day and wept tears of blood for Catherine. No, indeed, indeed, I wouldn't. And here Isabella began to cry, but immediately dashing the water from her lashes, she recommenced. 
You asked what has driven me to flight at last. I was compelled to attempt it, because I had succeeded in rousing his rage a pitch above his malignity. Pulling out the nerves with red-hot pincers requires more coolness than knocking on the head. He was worked up to forget the fiendish prudence he boasted of, and proceeded to murderous violence. I experienced pleasure in being able to exasperate him. The sense of pleasure woke my instinct of self-preservation, so I fairly broke free. And if ever I come into his hands again, he is welcome to a signal revenge. Yesterday, you know, Mr. Earnshaw should have been at the funeral. He kept himself sober for the purpose, tolerably sober, not going to bed mad at six o'clock and getting up drunk at twelve. Consequently, he rose in suicidal low spirits, as fit for the church as for a dance, and instead he sat down by the fire and swallowed gin or brandy by tumblerfuls. Heathcliff, I shudder to name him, has been a stranger in the house from last Sunday till today. Whether the angels have fed him or his kin beneath, I cannot tell, but he has not eaten a meal with us for nearly a week. He has just come home at dawn and gone upstairs to his chamber, locking himself in, as if anybody dreamt of coveting his company. There he has continued, praying like a Methodist, only the deity he implored is senseless dust and ashes, and God, when addressed, was curiously confounded with his own black father. After concluding these precious orisons, and they lasted generally till he grew hoarse and his voice was strangled in his throat, he would be off again, always straight down to the Grange. I wonder Edgar did not send for a constable and give him into custody. For me, grieved as I was about Catherine, it was impossible to avoid regarding this season of deliverance from degrading oppression as a holiday. I recovered spirits sufficient to bear Joseph's eternal lectures without weeping, and to move up and down the house less with the foot of a frightened thief than formerly. You wouldn't think that I should cry at anything Joseph could say, but he and Hareton are detestable companions. I'd rather sit with Hindley and hear his awful talk than with T'Little Maester and his staunch supporter, that odious old man. When Heathcliff is in, I'm often obliged to seek the kitchen and their society, or starve among the damp uninhabited chambers. When he is not, as was the case this week, I establish a table and chair at one corner of the house-fire, and never mind how Mr. Earnshaw may occupy himself, and he does not interfere with my arrangements. He is quieter now than he used to be, if no one provokes him. More sullen and depressed, and less furious. Joseph affirms he's sure he's an altered man, that the Lord has touched his heart, and he is saved so as by fire. I'm puzzled to detect signs of the favourable change, but it is not my business. 
Yesterday evening I sat in my nook reading some old books till late on towards twelve. It seemed so dismal to go upstairs with the wild snow blowing outside and my thoughts continually reverting to the kirkyard and the new-made grave. I dared hardly lift my eyes from the page before me. That melancholy scene so instantly usurped its place. Hindley sat opposite, his head leant on his hand, perhaps meditating on the same subject. He had ceased drinking at a point below irrationality, and had neither stirred nor spoken during two or three hours. There was no sound through the house but the moaning wind which shook the windows every now and then, the faint crackling of the coals, and the click of my snuffers as I removed at intervals the long wick of the candle. Hareton and Joseph were probably fast asleep in bed. It was very, very sad, and while I read I sighed, for it seemed as if all joy had vanished from the world, never to be restored. The doleful silence was broken at length by the sound of the kitchen latch. Heathcliff had returned from his watch earlier than usual, owing, I suppose, to the sudden storm. That entrance was fastened, and we heard him coming round to get in by the other. I rose with an irrepressible expression of what I felt on my lips, which induced my companion, who had been staring towards the door, to turn and look at me. "'I'll keep him out five minutes.' he exclaimed. "'You won't object?' "'No, you may keep him out the whole night for me,' I answered. "'Do put the key in the lock and draw the bolts.' Earnshaw accomplished this ere his guest reached the front. He then came and brought his chair to the other side of my table, leaning over it, and searching in my eyes for a sympathy with the burning hate that gleamed from his.' As he both looked and felt like an assassin, he couldn't exactly find that, but he discovered enough to encourage him to speak. "'You and I,' he said, "'have each a great debt to settle with the man out yonder. If we were neither of us cowards, we might combine to discharge it. Are you as soft as your brother? Are you willing to endure to the last and not once attempt a repayment?' "'I'm weary of enduring now,' I replied, "'and I'd be glad of a retaliation that wouldn't recoil on myself. "'But treachery and violence are spears pointed at both ends. "'They wound those who resort to them worse than their enemies.' "'Treachery and violence are a just return for treachery and violence,' cried Hindley. "'Mrs. Heathcliff, I'll ask you to do nothing but sit still and be dumb.' "'Tell me now, can you? "'I'm sure you would have as much pleasure as I "'in witnessing the conclusion of the fiend's existence. "'He'll be your death unless you overreach him, "'and he'll be my ruin. "'Damn the hellish villain! "'He knocks at the door as if he were master here already. "'Promise to hold your tongue, and before that clock strikes, "'it wants three minutes of one, you're a free woman.' He took the implements 